uh, chapter 13, that's where we're at. We're going to pick it up right there. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, and this is awesome. I, I love the fact that we get to be able to be part of a church and a community. I mean, St. Louis is kind of one of those places where it's, it's easy for us to look at and think everything's fine here. I mean, we're not San Francisco. We're not L.A. We don't have a, a crazy slum area around here where certain cities that might have a larger population have a mar- much larger population of people that might be really destitute. But we, but we do. There are people here, and there's pockets of them, and we see them, and we want to be able to be a church that responds to those as, as we can. And, uh, um, you know, there are areas in San Luis, obviously, that are, that are lower income, and there's a lot more destitution and difficulty and hardship in people's lives. And um, my challenge to you guys is continue to pray how God wants to use you guys. Uh, don't be someone that tends to kind of just look at a church and wait for a church to do something. You guys are the church. You guys are the church. We're the church, all of us. And the, the goal is for us to catch a glimpse of the gospel and figure out ways in which we can come together and serve one another and serve the pain, those that are hurting in the pain of this world. So continue to pray, seek God how he wants to maybe use you guys uh, because God wants to use you as a part of his strategy to, uh, to bring blessing all around. So uh, what we've been doing on Sunday mornings, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, right now we're chapter 13, we're making our way through this great book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and uh, we come to a very interesting passage here today that's uh, maybe familiar to some of you. Um, what I'm going to do this morning is a little bit different than we normally do, because a lot of times we'll read the large passage of Scripture, and then we'll get to work, we'll pray, kind of work, start working on it. Um, what I'm going to do a little bit differently today is I'm going to, I'm going to pray first, and then uh, we'll kind of give you guys a little bit of a, a context or preface as to what we'll be taking a look at here today. And then as we begin to get into the actual message, we'll sort of jump into the chapter itself or jump into the verses and begin to take a look at the verses uh, one by one because uh, they play into the story. There's a lot to be said about these passages. So I think what I'll do first is I'll pray. I need help. This is a big chunk of scripture. It's pretty... Uh, uh, complicated to some degree, and you'll see why in just a second here. And then uh, we'll get to work taking a look at this passage. Father, we ask you for your help right now, and Lord, I, I need your help. I need your wisdom. I need your input. And God, I, I pray that you would just supernaturally enable um, and equip me, Lord, to be able to equip your people. Uh, Jesus, we ask you this morning that your word would not just simply be information to our minds, but God, that it would be something which brings about radical transformation to who we are, how we live, that God, that as we understand who you are and what you've done, Jesus, for us, that you would take us, lead us into the places where the pain of this world is the greatest. Uh, that may be our next door neighbor, that may be another country, uh, that may be Hawthorne Elementary School, that may be an apartment complex here in town that's just going through a tough time, people living in there going through tough times, that may be cubicle cubicle next to us. But God, we pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear how your gospel not only impacts us, but it intends to impact others through us. So we pray for your help in discerning that and understanding that here this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I want to basically preface all of this this morning by jumping in to begin by saying that we at Calvary Slow, we believe that all of the Bible is trustworthy. We, we can trust the Bible. It's a, it's a text that was, even though it was written, you know, over 2,000 years ago and beyond, we believe that it has great relevance to us. Now, even though we believe that the Bible is trustworthy and true, uh, we also believe that the Bible is not necessarily equally understood or interpreted. In other words, there are passages and occasions in which portions of the Bible are very challenging and difficult to understand. This is one of the reasons why oftentimes certain Christians, uh, for the most part, may agree on some of the major components of the Christian faith, but have major disagreements on some of the secondary issues of the Christian faith. For example, have you ever met Christians that totally have very strong convictions about whether or not uh, the rapture is going to happen, or when it's going to happen, or how it's going to happen? Met those people? Like, we're talking like church divisions, and arguments, and nasty Facebook comments, and stuff like that, because there's a tendency to become very, very aggressive about some of these things, all right? Uh, what about some people that have radical differences of opinions over whether or not the gifts of the Spirit are for today or not for today? Ever, ever met, been in the middle of that line of fire? Any of you? Both of you? Come on, there's got to be more than that, all right? Uh, what about Calvinism, Arminianism, all right? Some of you maybe have heard of that. Some of you may have not. 
God bless you. Uh, one of these days, you'll be tainted by the whole argument. But the point of the matter is, is that there's a lot of disagreements over a lot of issues within the Bible. What I really want to emphasize here today as we read our Bibles, even though we believe that the entire Bible is true and trustworthy, not all the Bible is always equally clear. It's important for us to understand that. Um, really, the reality is, is that the passage that we'll be taking a look at here in Mark chapter 13, and it also has its parallel uh, versions in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, as well as Luke chapter 21. Um, this is, according to scholars, one of the most complex passages of Scripture uh, in the entire par- uh, um, sorry, in, in entire gospel accounts, if not in the entire Bible. They're very challenging. They're very complex. There's a lot of different layers to them, and there's a lot of disagreement and a lot of differing opinions over what these particular passages mean. Okay? But what we want to really emphasize is that we believe that there are passages in the Bible regarding salvation. We believe that there, is a dis- there, there needs to be distinguishing uh, of certain passages that have to do with essentials. And we also distinguish between essential salvation passages from secondary non-salvation passages. Let me put it this way. We believe that there are passages in the Bible that are completely essential, that reveal to us who Jesus is, that lead us to the place of salvation. We don't compromise over those. We don't negotiate about those. Those are absolutely essential. In fact, some have described it as being those are things, those are in one hand, we don't argue over those things because those things are factual, they're true, they're clear as we see them clearly portrayed in the Bible. But there are secondary issues that are non-salvation, you want another technical term, non-salvific, meaning they don't really have to do with salvation. Uh, They have to do with the Christian walk, but not necessarily with salvation. These we can put into sort of an open-handed issue, meaning we can agree to disagree over these things. We're not going to fight over these, thing, over these things. We're not going to divide over these things. And some of these issues may have to do with like, um, you know, things like you know, how the end times are going to play out. And this is what we'll be taking a look at here today. So the question is I want to ask you, as we get into Mark chapter 13, we'll be dealing with subject matter that has to do with, Jesus says, regarding, to, regarding of the end times. The actual theological word for this, big word, ready? This is Big Word Sunday. It's called eschatology. It's the study of last things. So we're going to be studying, to some degree, the issue of eschatology. Now, maybe some of you have met Christians throughout your life that are absolutely fixated on eschatology. They read only eschatological books. They only talk about what's going to happen in the end times. They read their Bible side by side, not with parallel passages of the Bible like King James, New King James, New Living Translation. They read their Bible like, here's the New Living Translation or the King James Version, and then here's their newspaper. And they try to superimpose their newspaper over their Bibles to somehow figure out how everything fits into some sort of end times conspiratorial theory. And they want to fight and argue and discuss and divide over all, of, all sorts of end times issues. Here's what I want to be very clear on. As a church, we have lots of different people in this church that have differing views about how the end times will play out. But we agree to disagree on those things. It's okay. We can have differing views along these things. One of the things that divides us, or, or the one thing that unites all of us, is that we are in agreement on the essentials. We love Jesus. Jesus is a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus came to save us. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus came to save us from a final judgment. Jesus came because he loves us. These are things that we believe. These are things that are essential. There are secondary, non-essential issues like this that we'll be studying today, looking at here today, that it's okay to agree to disagree over. So, if I say something that is a little bit not according to the shade of understanding that you've come to understand it, that's okay. It'd be great to have good, loving, challenging dialogue about these things, but we will not be a church that divides over these things. We don't, I mean, in other words, let me put it this way. There are certain hills, theological hills, that we should be willing to die on. We should be willing to lay our lives down. We should be willing to take a bullet, willing to lose our lives, willing to live in persecution for Jesus because of these things. There are other secondary issues like this that we don't want to die over these things. We really shouldn't be spilling Christian blood over these things. And these, this is one of those issues, the issue of end time. So with that being said, I want to just sort of preface this so that we all are on somewhat of a similar page. 
And what we're going to begin to take a look at here today is I think the way that Jesus intends for us to understand this is that we would read these passages, and Jesus is an original uh, people to whom he is writing or speaking to, uh, that Jesus wants them, intends for them to kind of read or understand the things that he's about to say to them by wearing lens, like bifocal lenses. In other words, the idea is that what Jesus is going to be communicating to his disciples uh, have sort of a near perspective, a near fulfillment, and a future fulfillment. Some have described it this way. It's like you know, getting up on top of a mountain range, and you look out over a mountain range, and you see these mountains kind of stacked up one after the next. And there's a tendency for us to look at those things and think, oh, they're all right next to each other. But the reality is, there may be you know, 20, 30, 50 miles in between those two different mountain ranges, massive valleys. And this seems to be what Jesus is doing in Mark chapter 13, uh, in describing these types of events. That I think it, he intends for us to understand these things with bifocals, looking at the near uh, the fulfillment of these things, and then later, uh, far in the future type of a fulfillment. Now, let me ask you this. The people whom Jesus was talking to, uh, knowing for us, we can look at these things and realize that there is a near fulfillment or an, an older, longer, longer-term fulfillment. For the disciples whom Jesus was talking to, were these things both in the future? The answer is yes, they were both in the future. Because the first initial thing that Jesus is going to be talking to them about has to do with the destruction of the temple. When will this system be destroyed? But then ultimately, it would seem as if Jesus kind of dovetails what he's talking about in terms of a longer, more uh, outset type of a judgment that will one day happen. So let me try to put it this way. I really want to try to bring some sort of a context to all of this because here's what I, what I, what I oftentimes see happens. There's a tendency for people that have, I think, good intentions. I'll, I'll at least give it to them. This. There are those that have good intentions that want to study things with regard to eschatology and times. And they love talking about, you know, charts and trying to figure out the way things are going to all play out and roll out. But the reality is, is that oftentimes what I've discovered is that there's a tendency to lose perspective and just simply focus upon this end time scenario. In other words, have you ever noticed that oftentimes those that are so into end times talk a lot about the Antichrist, talk a lot about Mark of the Beast, talk a lot about wars and rumors of wars and famines and trying to superimpose newspapers over their Bibles and talk a lot about all the stuff that's going to happen one day in the future, but there's an eerie silence when it comes to the gospel. They don't talk a lot about Jesus. They don't talk a lot about, you know, the fact that he came, died for our sin, paid a judgment for us, rose again from the dead. There's not a lot of Jesus. I'll give you an example. I kind of experienced this this past week. There's somebody that I've kind of been watching over the years, and he has kind of a website. Every single post that he has on his website, none of it, ironically, the guy's a Christian, has absolutely nothing about Jesus on it. it kind of struck me. I'm like, Everything on this page has to do with how you got to watch out certain words because some of these words are part of kind of the end times conspiracy. Uh, there's another post that talks about how you know, the Antichrist is coming through this evil world, wicked system in conspiratorial type ways. There's all this stuff about Antichrist, 666, Mark of the Beast, words you should avoid, ecumenism, all this stuff. No Jesus. No Jesus. He's not on there. This is unfortunate, and honestly, I believe that this is a trick of the devil, because he loves to get us talking about all sorts of other agenda, all sorts of other items. Some of these items can be even important items, but if we lose sight of Jesus, have we not lost the storyline? If we lose sight of Jesus, then we are missing the biggie on the eye chart. This is really bad. We shouldn't do this. So what I really want to emphasize is to really go back to the storyline, the drama, the narrative that's unfolding for us in the story of the Gospel Mark. And here's what I want to do. I'm going to basically point out three things that we'll be trying to cover and take a look at here this morning. The first thing we'll take a look at is the temple created. Okay, we'll take a look at a little bit about what Jesus is talking about, the temple created. We'll take a look at verse 1. The second thing we'll kind of cover the remainder of the verses going on about verse 13, the temple deconstructed, and then thirdly, we'll take a look at the temple recreated. So first, the temple created, the story behind this. Uh, secondly, we'll take a look at the temple deconstructed, and thirdly, we'll take a look at what Jesus' ultimate plan is, which is to reconstruct, to rebuild, to remake, to make something brand new. That's what Jesus is doing. 
So up until this point, what we've seen is that Jesus has been pushing back upon the religious system that has lost focus of God and of God's plans to the nations. It's become sort of a system that's become thoroughly corrupted and has become inward focused upon itself. This is really important for us to understand because this oftentimes happens historically in the churches. Churches, which are made up of people, churches ultimately become like the people that are in them. So in other words, when churches become simply focused upon themselves, all they're simply doing is reflecting the people that are in that church. So in other words, if we as human beings are redeemed by God, and we become simply focused on ourselves, and we lose sight of our neighbors that are hurting, or we become totally apathetic about those that have needs, if we become heartless about those that are struggling and suffering, carrying the gospel to them, loving them, honoring them, giving our money, giving our resources actively, generously, lovingly to the lost, to the poor, to the church, to help continue to promote the gospel, if we become focused, then the church becomes self-focused, and then when the church becomes self-focused, the church basically comes into the same category in which the temple was in the first century. In other words, it becomes obsolete. It's not functioning anymore. It's not doing what God intended for it to be. So with that being said, what we see, Jesus comes onto the scene, and he basically says the temple has served its purpose. It's no longer doing what it was intended to do, but there's something greater than the temple to come and to replace it. So what we see Jesus doing is he's launching a brand new campaign, temple rebuilding campaign, not with new brick and mortar, but with his blood. This is what we see. So the first thing I want to jump in and take a look at is the temple created. Mark chapter 13, verse 1, we're told, says, and as they came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. So the disciples, I want to show you the next slide. Um, is a picture of the Temple Mount. Um, there's a lot of temple pictures and whatnot on Google that you can download. In fact, I would encourage you maybe go on YouTube. There's some really cool things. I was going to show you. There's like a three-minute video clip, but I decided not to, and you guys can just go on YouTube and check it out. It's like a little three-minute video clip of sort of an actual um, dramatization of walking through the temple. I think they did a really good job at sort of capturing the essence of it. There's a handful of them, two or three of them, um, all from different you know, creators. Um, but they did a really good job. But this is basically the picture of the temple. What I want you to understand about the temple, first century, is that this was an enormous structure. And what we see is that the temple was uh, created. Um, I'm going to go through a very, very fast history of kind of what has happened, transpired throughout history from the very beginning. A lot of scholars, a lot of ancient Jewish theologians basically viewed the Garden of Eden as the original temple. In other words, God created the earth as basically being like a temple. Eden was like a holy of holies, and Adam and Eve were basically to function as priests, serving God, loving God, bringing God in his ways into this world by having kids, training them, raising them, loving them, nurturing them to basically bring forth God's glory throughout the earth. We see examples of this, for example, like in Ezekiel uh, chapter 28, verse 18, where Eden is referred to as a sanctuary. Um, Adam was perhaps likely, like I mentioned, kind of a, the, one of the first high priests, kind of viewed as someone that was to serve and guard and cultivate and basically be in relationship with God. In other words, the idea was that the earth was to be filled with the glory of God. What ended up happening was later on, you would see the temple that would rise up, and the temple, the physical temple, brick and mortar, was the place that was described as, and the temple was filled with the glory of God. God's original design was that the earth would be filled with the glory of God. What happened was Adam and Eve sinned. We know a little bit of that story. They rebelled against God. God kicked them out of the garden. They were banished from the garden. In front of the garden, God places an angel with a flaming sword, says, you're not allowed to go back into the garden. In the center of the garden was a tree tree of life. This tree was to be what gave them substance, gave them sustenance, gave them life. Now they're banished from the tree in the garden, from the glory, the presence, the privilege, the protection, the love of God. And now they're in this world. And what ends up happening throughout the history of the people of Israel, years later, and I'm going to skip over lots and lots of years, uh, God raises up a king, King David. King David has a son. His son's name is Solomon. Solomon wants to build a temple, but Solomon builds a temple. It becomes this unbelievably big, large, wonderful, beautiful uh, place that was to be the spot of worship. Um, what happens is Israel, through many generations, 
sins. God brings about judgment upon Israel. The temple falls prey to uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of the Babylonians. The, the Jews are in exile in, you know, in Babylonia and Persia. They end up coming back from exile. Uh, prior to coming back, there's a guy by the name of Ezra, uh, a long tag team with another guy by the name of Zerubbabel, and they rebuild the temple. So temple, original temple, you can say maybe Garden of Eden, uh, and then secondly, the real temple, the first temple, as we kind of identify it, first temple was built by Solomon. Second temple was built by this guy by the name of Ezra and alongside with Zerubbabel. You guys following so far? You falling asleep? Anyone? Do I need to wake up anybody yet? Okay, good. Uh, the second temple was rebuilt or built by this guy by the name of Zerubbabel slash and Ezra. Okay, so what ends up happening, by the time of the first century, there was this big, massive, great, megalomaniac type of a king. His name was Herod. I mean, everything Herod did, history tells us that Herod was a small guy. Wasn't very big. But Herod loved to build big things. Everything Herod built was monstrous. And you can actually go to Israel today and look at a lot of the archaeological digs that are being done today, and you can discover some of the things that bear Herod's fingerprint upon them. One of those things was the temple. Herod basically came along and says to the Jews, I want to be your king. I want to have good relationship with you. I know you guys have this kind of rinky-dink temple that was really nothing like or more of like a shadow of the temple of ancient great uh, the King Solomon's temple. And Herod basically said, here's what I want to do. I want to do a renovation. I want to make the temple big. Big, really big. Amazing, awesome. So the people are like, sweet, let's do it. So Herod funded the entire project. History actually tells us that every single stone that Herod brought in to rebuild and reconstruct the temple actually had his name on it. We're actually told that Herod on this temple mount, somewhere right around there, had a house. So I want you to imagine this. In the neighborhood, there were two houses. Yahweh and Herod, all right? I mean, this is like Herod basically saying, you want to know how important I am? God rules Israel and the earth, and, and I'm the political leader. God oversees all the religious stuff. I oversee everything else. I mean, this is a guy that really had no self-esteem issues. He was really passionate about himself, all right? But what's amazing to me about this is that God actually used a straight-up pagan to build something amazing for God. This is amazing to me how God can just use anybody. God's not necessarily a, you know, a respected person. God will use anybody for the purpose of rebuilding and building his kingdom. And this is what happened. So the temple became this spectacular, massive place. And so, in fact, you can kind of describe it this way. In most ancient cultures and civilizations, you would basically identify cities with temples. That's not the way Jerusalem was. Jerusalem was a temple with a city. I mean, if you want to look at it this way, there's nothing in the modern world in which we can compare this to at all. I mean, we can say, uh, destroy the temple, but here's what happens when you destroy the ancient temple. You destroy everything that Israel was all about. You can say, let's say, knock out the White House. You still got a nation. I mean, you can knock out the Twin Towers. You still got the nation. That's sort of the financial uh, depiction. Most buildings of ancient civilizations oftentimes depicted elements of greatness, elements of value. So, in fact, you can kind of do a little bit of a case, sociological case study, go into different cities, take a look at the biggest, greatest, most expensive buildings. Every single one of them will somehow be a testament of cultural values. Every single one of them. They stand for what is the most valuable in that culture. Every city has them, right? So if you go to France, you have the Louvre, it's kind of like they stand for culture, stand for art what makes, you know, Rome so, I don't know, romantic, whatever. I mean, there's something beautiful about that. And you can take a look at almost every culture, every civilization, both modern and, and ancient, and every one of them builds these buildings because really what happens is there's sort of innate, something innate inside of all of us that wants something to outlast us. Meaning, we know we're mortal. We know we're going to die. But we want what we stand for to outlive us. So what do we do? We build a building if we have money. You have lots of kids. If you got lots of power, you got you know you have the ability to have lots of kids. You want something to carry your name a lot longer. This, in essence, what was happening. Herod built this massive temple, massive structure, as a means of saying, "I'm great, and Yahweh's pretty good too, and I want to be recognized forever for my greatness." 
And so this temple basically, now you imagine those people that worked in the temple, even though Herod was dead during the time of Jesus, uh, his family basically were on the throne. And so this whole system had become very corrupt. I'll give you a couple examples of how this basically had sort of fallen down. That this temple, rather than being a place that people can go and meet with God and be taken care of and have their needs met, uh, rather than being a place where all the nations could be invited to worship God, what ended up happening is that this basically became a place of extreme exclusivity. Rather than being a place where sick people can come and be prayed for and healed, this place became a spot, a zone known for those that devoured the vulnerable. Okay, We saw this a couple weeks ago. Rather than this being a place where money, wealth, riches can be redistributed to the poor, the hurting, this basically became a Ponzi scheme that the poor became a part of. Not, and they weren't benefiting from it. They were on the losing side of this thing. So Jesus comes in and pronounces a judgment on the temple, which leads us to the next point. The first thing is the temple created. We see sort of a purpose and vision and idea behind the temple. Herod's uh, building of this temple. The second thing we see is this temple deconstructed. In other words, it will be destroyed. Verse 2 tells us, And then Jesus said to them, Do you see these great buildings? He says, There, are not, uh, w- there will not be one left, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So here's what Jesus basically says. This massive structure that supports all religion, all social strength, all financial gain, um, all political uh, interest, all of these things that are basically built upon the temple, Jesus says not one stone will be left standing upon another. It will be totally destroyed. Stone by stone, dismembered. And I would imagine, this, you know, for the disciples, this is shocking news to them. Because this is all they knew. And really what ends up happening is later on in AD 70, history tells us, based upon the writings of Josephus and others, that literally this is exactly what happened. The city of Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans. And literally what ended up happening, once they finally breached the wall, got into the city, and ended up destroying all the people, upwards of a million people died. This was a massive massive uh, just destruction and slaughter of many, many people. This is a complete holocaust that happened to the Jews in the first century. And not only did they just simply lose uh, many lives, but they lost, in essence, their identity. Their temple was completely gone. And what Jesus is saying to these people, to his disciples, that originally the temple, yes, was created, had a purpose, had an intention, Yes, and ultimately the temple became perverted and destroyed, just like human beings. God originally created human beings for a purpose. Human beings got messed up. We started making our own decisions. In other words, we became, in a lot of ways, just as messed up as the temple system. Rather than being people that care about the poor, rather than be, being people that care about you know, releasing people's debt and forgiving them, and rather than harboring grudges, releasing people, forgiving people, using our money to redistribute, helping those that are in need, we become people that have self-serving interests just like the temple. And Jesus is basically saying that it will be destroyed, deconstructed. So there's really five reasons. I'll go through these things very quickly as to why uh, people in the first century would go to the temple. Five reasons. The first reason was this. It was the place between heaven and earth. It was viewed as where heaven and earth intersected. It was the spot. It was sort of the sacred place. Second reason, it was the place where God dwelt. It was viewed as inside the Holy of Holies. This was the spot where God resided. It was the place where the temple, uh, or I should say the Ark of the Covenant was there. And it was the place where the glory of God, this Think this cloud, oftentimes described as the Shekinah glory of God, would fill the temple. It was the place where God resided. Third thing, it was the place where God would then meet with his people. Because God wanted to meet with his people. God loved his people and he wanted to meet with them. Fourth thing, it was a place that you would go to have your sin forgiven. Because we are sinners. Because in essence we were rebels against God. Because we were treasonous in our actions toward God. Rather than living our lives loving and welcoming in God's kingdom, we basically made ourselves sovereigns, declared ourselves king and queens, and basically pushed God and his purposes out of our life. And therefore, we're treasonous. And we need to somehow deal with that 
issue of sin, and the temple was the place in which we would have our sin forgiven and dealt with that way we can enter back into right relationship and fellowship with God because he loves us. God provided the means whereby we can do that by way of sacrifice. The fifth thing, that it was the place where God's people would gather as a nation or as a family. It's amazing that when the people of Israel all around would gather and come to the Temple Mount, they would, as because Israel was sort of a, a, a city about 2,500 feet above sea level, whenever you went to Israel, you would always go up to Israel. Always go up to Israel. You would always ascend. And actually had songs. They had a song book that was basically called the Songs of Ascent. So as they would walk up to Jerusalem, because most people walk back in those days, um, they, as they would walk up, they would sing songs. Imagine they would be like in packs of people, large packs of people, walking up, little kids, grandmas, uh, donkeys, you would carry different you know, uh, you know, beasts of burden that would carry your food. And as you were walking up with these large groups of people from all around the area, some from northern Israel, some all the way from Ethiopia, some from Europe, they would gather together and congregate and make their way up to the city of Jerusalem. They would sing these songs of praise. And the moment they would get to the spot where they would see the temple, the city, we're told that people would weep. They would weep for joy because it was in that temple, in that place, that all nations, all tribes, all tongues would come together and meet God. Have their sins forgiven and be a big family. And God would be like a dad. So this is what was happening. I'm going to read the passages now as we kind of get into this, as we begin to understand the temple deconstructing. This is where things kind of get pretty gnarly. We'll read. Verse 3 says this. Jesus, in essence, is saying that the temple and the entire system would ultimately come to an abrupt end. And his disciples are asking, when? When's this going to happen? When's this going to take place? Verse 13, it says, And he sat down on the Mount of Olives, which is opposite the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. These would be four of the main uh, disciples or apostles of Jesus. These are sort of the main close uh, friends of Jesus. And they would oftentimes be with Jesus in sort of these little private meetings. And verse 4 says, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things uh, that you are talking about take place. So in essence, they're asking two questions. When will the temple be destroyed, and when will the signs of these things take place? And so most scholars see that there's, like I said, kind of this near uh, fulfillment and then far-off fulfillment dealing with the final judgment. In verse 5, it says, And then Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Or, uh, leads you astray. Uh, many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. So Jesus says you need to be careful. Now again, I think my personal thought on this is in this immediate sense, the first few verses here, Jesus is talking about the near fulfillment of this. In other words, in 70 AD, the temple would be destroyed. 70 AD, around 65 AD or so, somewhere around there, five years prior, these uh, troops would begin to start kind of making their way into the city. Things would start getting a little bit hairy. People would start kind of wondering what's going on. And then those that heard Jesus teach here, they would know. Jesus is saying, he's preparing them, but he's warning them because coming up to that time, coming up to that time, there are going to be people that will try to deceive you. There will be people that will come along and say, I'm the Christ. And remember, I've been trying to impress upon you guys for a lot of times, a lot of weeks now, that the word Christ can also simply in our English just be carrying the, mean, uh, the, the word or the meaning of what? King. So what Jesus is saying, there's going to be many that are going to come and claim to be the king. He says, don't believe him. There's one king. There's one king. If another person comes, even if he seems or appears to have credentials, don't believe him. You'll be led astray. Don't be led astray. So he's saying you've got to be aware because there are those that will come and lead many astray. Verse 6, he says, um, in verse 7, I should, sorry, should say, verse 7, he says, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. What Jesus is saying is that, I think, in terms of this near a fulfillment to his disciples. He's saying, beware, because you're going to hear of wars, and you're going to hear rumors of wars. Now remember, back then, they didn't have Twitter. All right, so they weren't able to listen and read live, like an attack in Benghazi. They weren't. Sometimes it would take weeks, if not months, sometimes even years to hear of a war. And then, even if you did hear about it, there's no way to ver validate or verify it. You can be like, I'll check Google. Uh, no Google. Like, I'll call my grandma. No phone. Like, I'll text my mother who lives in Rome. No phones. No way to get a hold of anybody. No way to validate or verify whether or not these rumors are true. But Jesus is saying, you're going to hear lots of rumors. And when you hear these rumors, don't go astray. 
Remember me. Stay focused on the mission. Because these are, these are just the beginning of the signs. It's kind of amazing to me how in our culture, we're very fear-based. Have you noticed that? That there's a tendency that when we watch the news, when we hear things that are going on, there's a tendency for people to get absolutely full of fear, full of anxieties. I think oftentimes Christians can be the worst at this because oftentimes Christians try to read into this and interpret this and saying, well, this war might somehow line up with, you know, a passage in the Old Testament. And they freak out and they start spending all their time, all their effort, all their energy trying to convince everybody how this somehow, this war is somehow leading to some sort of end times conspiracy. And to be honest with you, I think what Jesus is saying, be careful that you don't lose sight of the purposes of the gospel. I'm here. Yes, there's going to be rumors of war. Yes, there's going to be wars. Yes, there's going to be deceivers. They're going to come along. They're going to try to get you off track. They're going to try to mislead you. But don't let that happen to you. Then he goes on to say, there's going to be earthquakes, various places, famines. These are but the beginning of birth pangs. In other words, what Jesus is saying, and oftentimes what was sort of part and parcel of a lot of the uh, ancient prophets' understanding, that this world, in its corruptness, in its brokenness, will one day according to the promises of God, will undergo a rebirth. So when Jesus describes the earth as going through birth pangs, it's a totally appropriate analogy to describe what God is about to do. So here's what I think Jesus is saying. That this broken earth, this dead earth, this dead world, is about to undergo a rebirth. Something new is about to happen. Something new is about to come onto the world scene. Something that will somehow overcome and supersede and take the place of the old. And in the Jewish context, the old system was depicted by and embodied by a completely corrupted temple. And Jesus is saying this temple will be replaced and the earth will go through these birth pangs and it will bring about something radically new, radically different, radically life-giving. Verse 9, he says, be on guard, for they will deliver you over to the councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before the governors and kings for my sake. You will uh, bear witness before them, and the gospel must be first preached to all the nations. In verse 11, he says, and when they bring you to trial to deliver you, don't be anxious beforehand, and you will say, but uh, don't be anxious beforehand what you will say. He says, for whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it's the Holy Spirit. In other words, what he's saying is that uh, as you are in the place where God's new earth, God's new work, God's new creation is being birthed upon this planet, what you will discover is there are those that oppose this. There are those that are not interested in what God is doing, and they will fight back, they will push back, they will challenge. And as they will kill me, now remember, Jesus hadn't died yet, so... Even if Jesus is like, hey, they're going to crucify me, they still wouldn't get it. But we know now, because we can read back in history, realize what happens is that as Jesus is part of, in other words, Jesus is the prototype of all this new work that God's doing, they ended up putting Jesus to death because they didn't like Jesus. Jesus, in essence, is saying, as they will crush me and kill me, so they will crush and kill you, because as they resisted God's coming into this world, God's breaking forth his kingdom in this world, in me, by putting me to death, so... Expect the same for you. So here's what Jesus is going on to say. Verse 12, he says, Brother will deliver a brother over death, and father his child, and children will rise against the parents and have them put to death. He says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And don't read that as the one who endures to the very end is going to go to heaven. What Jesus is saying is that the one who's going to endure to the end will be saved, meaning you will save your life. If you do what I tell you to do, when these things begin to happen, He'll save your life. So guess what happened in 65 70 to 70 AD? When Rome started gathering around the city and all of these things started happening, guess what the Christians did? They fled the city. They were saved. They were protected. Many of them didn't die. Those that heard the words of Jesus obeyed the words of Jesus. So when Rome came in, sacked Jerusalem, and it was destroyed, what happened now is the Jews and the Christians, I should say, that were part of this, understood the words of Jesus. They were actually able to play an active part and being able to help bring hope and life to those that were suffering and, and trying to make sense of this thing. As literally the world, as they knew it, was coming to a close, was being destroyed. They were entering into this dark holocaust of a moment 
where their very temple and their life and social and economic and political and everything they had vested interest in was literally being crumbled before their eyes, those who trusted Jesus were able to be in a place to bring hope. So what we see later on as we get into this passage further in over the next week, we're going to see the secondary extended version of this what's going to happen is that i think jesus is going to go beyond this scenario and on to the end of the final judgment that there will come a final judgment that like the temple that was judged like people that were part of the temple fall had fallen under the weight of the temple jesus is basically saying so too one day in the future there will come a final judgment where god will basically make his final ruling and god will basically set all the wrongs to right So this does not mean that Christians, as they go about God's work, we're not building a utopia here. We're building for the kingdom of God. We're living out the gospel now. We have work to do because there are broken people in this world. There are hurting people in this world. We will not bring about the ultimate final kingdom of God here. That will be given to Jesus when Jesus supernaturally, divinely, one day in the future, chooses to return. When that will happen, when that will take place, we have no idea. Yes, there are those that speculate on it. Harold Camping, there are those that come along and try to make assessments and judgments as to when this is going to happen, and oftentimes what ends up happening is every single time, they're always, without exception, wrong. It's shocking to me that people still like pick up books and read and read blogs and try to figure out, oh, based upon this math, I can see Jesus is going to come back in 2012. Wrong, just like everybody else. We don't know when it's going to happen. He doesn't tell us when it's going to happen. In fact, he goes on to tell us no one will the day or the hour when these things are going to happen. But what we do know is that like Jesus, what we see with Jesus is that Jesus puts himself where the purposes of God and the pain of this world overlap. That was to be what the temple was all about. But the temple became obsolete. Rather than being a place that took care of people, that helped people, fed people, Prayed for people, it became totally obsolete. It was worthless. Jesus comes in, basically fulfills what the temple failed to do. And in Jesus, what we see is that Jesus becomes the perfect fulfillment of this. And what we see in the third and final thing I want to focus on is the temple recreated. And in Jesus, what we see is that what I love about Jesus, when Jesus comes on the scene, is Jesus doesn't just simply come in and start casting judgments and start criticizing all these things. He doesn't come in and just simply pronounce judgment on the temple, but he actually provides a better, better alternative. And actually picks up the tab. This is amazing. Because you know what I find oftentimes, you and I, people like you and I, we're really good at trying to figure out what's wrong. We can criticize, we can make fun of it. We do this every single day. We walk into church, we walk into restaurants, we walk into our nation, we look at our nation. We're like, this is wrong, this is jacked up, this is messed up, this is totally destroyed. And we don't either, we don't do anything about it either because we're powerless to do something about it or we don't have the heart or the willingness or the love to do something about it. What I love about Jesus is Jesus comes in and says this is totally messed up, it's totally obsolete, it's broken, but I have a plan to fix it. And I will pick up the tab. It will be free to all who trust, but it will cost me everything. And what we see in Jesus is this perfect fusion, this perfect combination of Jesus being in the very place, centers himself in the very purposes of God, in the very pain of this world, where all of these things come together. Jesus puts himself in the very center of that storm. Jesus becomes, in essence, the lightning rod of God's wrath. He bears upon himself the judgment that the Jewish system, the Jewish temple, which frankly represents all of us because all of us are just as bad, just as corrupt as it was. Jesus bears upon himself the judgment that the temple deserves, that you and I deserve, puts himself at the center of the purposes of God and the pain of this world. And what Jesus is saying is that this is the means of bringing to birth this new temple, this new life. Jesus literally allows the forces of anti-creation to come upon him to deconstruct him. But the beauty of the story is that three days later, he rises again. You can't conquer God. He conquers all. 
This is the story of Jesus. And what Jesus is saying, if you trust him, if you love him, if you believe in him, trust him, serve him, what you will discover is that you will become durable like he is. But this does not mean that your life will be pain-free because Jesus said there will be wars and rumors of war. There will be people that will deceive you. There will be people that will come. They'll bring persecution. That will bring oppression and destruction and hardship upon you. They may torment you. They may crush you. They may kill you. But that's what they did to me. This is what happens. Anytime a new system, a new kingdom comes in, it's oftentimes met with direct opposition from the old system. And Jesus is saying, if they crushed me, they may crush you. But Jesus' final words to his people were this. Be of good cheer. I've overcome this world system. I've overcome it. What you're working for, what you're doing, what you're putting your hands to has eternal weight. It won't wash away. It won't fade away. It's firm. It's strong. It will never fade is the point that Jesus would make. And his whole point, I think, is trying to emphasize to us that if we recognize that this is how Jesus does this himself, that he puts himself in these places, what we discover is that Jesus actually calls his followers to the very same place. That we, if we follow Jesus, I once, I, I just recently read an audio book, and there's, the author had this phrase, and I loved it. He says, Jesus' followers follow Jesus. Seems pretty simple, but the point of the matter is, is that oftentimes we think we're Jesus' followers, but we're not really following Jesus. We're sort of following Jesus kind of as an edited form. We're like, I'll follow Jesus as long as my life's comfortable, as long as I can make decent money, as long as I can keep a certain standard of living. Look, at the end of the day, guys, I understand this is tough. We live in a world in which we are literally surrounded by so much good stuff. And as absolutely tempting as all of this stuff is to us, to our souls, it will bring corruption to you. You have to see that. It will make you inward focused. It will make you become somebody that just has only interest in yourself. And when you do that, when you become like that, you stop loving others. You stop giving away to others. Rather than being generous and giving of your resources and of your money and of your time, you become stingy with it and you refuse to give it away and you guard it and you protect it. Don't you think if God who loves you, created you, knows how you are wired, says it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Don't you think he knows the path to real joy? I mean, this is challenging for me because the reality is I, I oftentimes want to push back on this. And oftentimes I want to guard my life and guard myself and guard my time and guard my resources. But if he who made me knows how I tick, and at the end of the day, the very things that he asks of me to do, he himself does. And even though he was crushed, it can later be written that for the joy that was set before him, he endured that cross. That somehow, in this radical sense of pain, torment, oppression, and judgment of this cross, it was commingled somehow with this sense of joy for the purposes of God. Because somehow it was becoming part of the solution to the pain in this world, and in your soul and my soul. That when God calls us to follow him, what that's going to look like for us is going to be different for all of us because God gives us different gifts. He places us in certain different places, unique places. But one thing that will be the same is the theme. That no matter what types of circumstances we find ourselves in, somehow it will end up leading us by following God to the places of the purposes of God and the pain of this world. It's where they overlap. It's in those places that God wants to use us to be a light, use us to give, use us to love. And when we pick up the tab, so to speak, and we forgive, and we love, and we pay, we give money, we release resources, we release our time. You think there's a payment there? There's a cost to that? You think sometimes when you give yourself joyfully, or when you give yourself away, or you give your money away, that you will not enter into moments where it's going to feel painful? It will feel painful, just like it was painful for Jesus. Not to that extreme, though. But in the meantime, when that happens, what we discover is that that becomes the means by which God communicates to this broken world that he's recreating all things. 
And yes, it started 2,000 years ago at the cross. And yes, we're living in these times that the Bible describes as the last times. It's been past 2,000 years, by the way. In these last days, God's doing something new. There is this sort of overlap of the old creation, the old ways, and the new creation that's coming, but that ultimately set a beachhead. Just like on the beaches of Normandy and ending World War II, there was a beachhead that was launched and staged at the cross. Jesus is the prototype of that, and we get to follow King Jesus. And we get to be a part of his kingdom-building purposes. Not alone, but with his power in us, leading us, challenging us, guiding us. This is unbelievable joy that we have. So that at the end of the day, it's not that we have to go out and do these things. It's that we get to be a part of God's purposes in this world. That he invites us in. I'm going to pray, and we're going to finish. And we're going to finish with a couple songs of worship. I want to invite you in. If you're here today, and maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're somebody that's kind of been living on the outskirts of this, maybe to some degree you've understood a little bit about Jesus, but it's never really made sense to you, I want you to see the gospel as being something that Jesus invites you into. Jesus welcomes you into. I'm going to pray. We'll sing a couple songs. Invite you to partake of communion. We have it in the back in these little three areas. If you guys want to just sing, get on your face before God. We have some rugs up here. If you want to worship God, just on your face. You're more than welcome to. Our goal is to want to not only have revelation, God's word, but also have response. Whereby we sing back, love back, confess sin. And what we see in Jesus is he's the perfect fulfillment of the temple. That he is the place where God and earth overlap. Jesus is the place where we go and get our sins forgiven. Jesus is the place where he draws all names, tribes, tongues, people, social economic levels together in himself. Jesus is the new temple. And ultimately tells us that those within whom he lives were part of that new temple as well. That means that God's here. We don't have to go somewhere. We don't have to find some sacred spot to search out God. Instead, God has sought us out because he loves us. God has paid a price for us, birthed a new work on his tab. That's how much he loves us. God, thank you for what you've done for us. We want to now sing and worship, confess sin to you, be reminded of what you did for us, Jesus, by partaking of the communion. So we give this time.